Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 59. Got a great interview coming up today. I sat down and talked with a mixer that works crazy fast, and we get into how he does it and also why. And so to go right along with that theme, I thought, hey, we've never done a proper intro on being organized, so let's do that. And to start off, we're going to go back in time, back to the days of making records on analog tape, before your computer even existed. Back then, you couldn't make a record if you weren't a fairly organized person. You had multiple takes of songs on different reels of tape with track sheets that might change from song to song. Every time you moved studios, you'd be working on a different console with different gear. And before you even started, you had to recreate the balance that the artist liked just to get back to work. Everything was based on good note-taking and being organized, from what tracks are free on the tape machine all the way down to the schedule for equipment load-in. Now, if you've worked or are currently working in one of the more traditional studios in a major music hub city, then you're still familiar with a lot of this. Tape machines may not be as common as they once were, but you're still dealing with copious amounts of notes, recall sheets, scheduling equipment rentals, and cartage, so on and so forth. Now, let's jump to the everyday norm for 99% of musicians, engineers, and producers. You open a song in Pro Tools, Logic, or Ableton, and it sounds exactly like it did the night before when you closed it. You get right back to work and can easily print a final mix on your laptop, upload it to your distributor of choice, and have it out in the world with little to no difficulty, aside from the creative process at least. No wonder it took months and months to make an album years ago. Today, you could do a song from start to release in a day. So you're probably thinking, yeah, today's dope, old people's stuff is lame, but, and you're right, there are millions of reasons that today is amazing. Technology allows us to do so much, it's absolutely unbelievable, really. But also, To a certain degree, we've let technology run over our interest or even our need to be organized. Here's an example. Your phone can tell you when to leave to get to your meeting on time. If you want, you can exert absolutely zero brain power into even knowing you have a meeting, and you can still get there on time. So what's my point? My point is that there's a lot of value in being organized, and the world is allowing us to get away with not doing it because it's doing it for us. Think of all the stuff you used to have to stay on top of that is now just handled for you. Phone numbers. Does anybody remember a phone number? Email addresses. Now your email software just remembers them. You don't even have to put them in your contacts anymore. If you buy a plane ticket, the schedule just really creepily shows up in your Google Calendar. We've all had that one, right? If an invoice is overdue, you get a reminder, as does the client. You still don't even have to do anything. It emails them for you. And this one, this one personally cracks me up a little bit. People are subscribing to so many things now that there are services to find your subscriptions and cancel them for you. So yeah, we're getting away with not ever really being organized. 
Now, with that in mind, let's jump back to our analog tape example. Imagine an overdub session to a 24 track without a track sheet. You can't zoom out on the screen and see if there's anything on track 15. You can't just listen to the first 10 seconds and not hear anything and assume it's empty. Goodbye guitar solo at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, right? Here's a few more modern day examples to prove my point. Has anybody ever asked you for an instrumental of something that you just couldn't find? What computer did I do that on? What hard drive was that on? If you can't find it, you could have just lost a placement. Have you ever sifted through a session of tracks called Audio 1 through Audio 72 looking for that fuzz guitar double that was supposed to be muted? Or uh, have ever been mid-production and thought, I need that synth pad from that song I did last year with so-and-so artist. What are you going to do? Just stop the session and go look for the song on various hard drives for 20 minutes? Have you ever stopped mid-mix and told a client, hang on, let me find this one kick I like, and then flipped over to Finder to spacebar down arrow your way through 200 kick samples? So long story short, if you're not organized, you're going to lose time, and you might even lose clients and collaborators. Not to mention, you're definitely going to be more stressed. Being organized has for sure reduced my stress level, I know that, because we all get anxiety when we can't keep up with our schedule, or when our to-do list is exploding, or what about when everything you do seems to take way longer than it should. If you're on top of things, you can control how long projects take. You can better plan your calendar. You can avoid some of these things. And side tangent, having a dependable task and reminder list can do wonders for your mental clarity. I've talked about it before on the show. Your brain will keep track of all the things you need to do. And if you don't write them down, it will remind you of all of them every time you sit down to try to focus on anything else. So just because technology is letting you get away with not being organized, that doesn't mean that there's not a place for it in your life. And I'm not suggesting you don't let your phone tell you when to leave for your meeting. That's actually giving you mental clarity and more bandwidth that you can spend on your own creativity. So what I'm suggesting is consider finding some ways to organize your life. Are there tasks that you can automate? Are there things you always find yourself doing that you can work around? Are you spending a lot of time looking for sounds and files? Are you losing time in your day answering collaborators' emails about confusing things you sent them? Okay, so I know that was a lot of screaming at you about being organized. So I think I'll close this one out with some tips. So here's a list of things that I do or I've seen people do that I think are really great. One, work on dedicated external hard drives so when you need space on a computer or you get a new computer, you aren't trashing or leaving projects behind. Two, if you have favorite samples, make them easy to find. Put them in a new folder or add a tag to them that you can search for. Also, along those lines, shout out to Damian Taylor and the Beats Accelerator process for this one. If you have 10,000 samples and you only use 200 of them, maybe there's some place you can put those other 9,800 samples where they won't clutter your hard drive. Maybe, dare I say, the trash? I don't know. Uh, let's see, three, uh, save your own presets. Are you working with repeat clients? Save settings that you know work for that artist every time. Make your life easier. Or save drum kits or synth patches that you created that you love. Maybe organize them by song name or artist or genre. Make it so when you're in a creative flow, you can easily access what you're looking for. Along with presets, start with templates. If you're always making the same reverbs and always making the same instruments or whatever, make templates that start with those things loaded. Every DAW has made creating templates super easy, so you've got to take advantage of that. Number five, have a reliable file naming structure and hierarchy. Always save stuff in the same type of nested folders. Things should always be easy to find. What happens if you have to tell your assistant or your partner where to find things? You need to know how to walk them through that. And not to mention, if you have a consistent way that you work, it makes things significantly easier to automate. Six, I think we're on six, 
while we're talking about file naming, use batch renaming software if you need to rename a bunch of files. Don't waste your time. I've saved hours of my life doing this. And last, number seven, when you finish a project, print files in a way that are archivable. Be sure to print any soft synths, maybe, uh, maybe even some obscure plugins or stuff that you're demoing that you don't think you'll buy. As time passes, software may not always be backwards compatible, but audio files, on the other hand, will always work. Don't miss out on opportunities because you can't open a session anymore because you never bounced an instrumental. So I think those are a good start for just some ideas. Hopefully something stuck out to you. And just remember, the goal is to be organized enough that it allows you to create and work with focus and mental clarity. Don't overorganize and waste your own time. I've definitely been guilty of that. And it's for sure a fine line, so you have to be careful. But I'm pretty sure there's at least one thing that you can think of right now that you could be doing better that would save you time and allow you to create or do more. Today's guest is Nashville-based mix engineer Billy Decker. Billy is most known for two things, mixing a lot of hits and mixing them fast. His credits include 16 Billboard number ones and artists such as Sam Hunt, Chris Young, Rodney Atkins, and Cassidy Pope. In the studio, he works very quickly, finishing mixes in about an hour. He's written a book about his process called Template Mixing and Mastering, and has also done a course for Pro Mix Academy on the same topic. So the productivity and efficiency nerd me is super excited to hang out and talk about it all. So welcome to the show, Billy Decker. Hey, Billy, how are you? Uh, I'm actually mixing a song right now as we're speaking. I have no time to talk to you. No, I'm kidding. That's, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The interview might be longer than the mix, if I understand correctly. <laughs> That's probably true. Probably true. How are you, sir? I am good, man. How are you? I'm, I'm assuming you're in Nashville, but people have been moving around, so maybe you're not. You are, right? Yes, I'm in Nashville. I've been here since 90, 1996. 1994. Cool. 94, excuse me. 94. My son was born in 96. That's why I actually got that messed up. So. Very <clears throat> cool. Nashville was on my list of places to go. I thought about it. I went down there. I checked it out. It, this was like 2004 or five. L.A. ended up winning out, so I, I ended up here. But You know what's funny is when I got out of uh, my first internship, actually my second internship, way back after I went to audio school, and I actually had an offer. I was in Nebraska at the time. I had a job offer in Nashville in like 92, and I was like, Nashville, that's country music. I hate that stuff. I hate that. Man, are you kidding me? I'll never go to Nashville. That's It's like yeehaws and rednecks. No way. I'm from the Midwest. And then fast forward, you know, it's like, <laughs> holy smokes. Well, well, what were you into then at the time? If, if you weren't a country fan, were you a you, rock guy? Rock, yeah. Rock yeah. is my true love. And anytime I get to mix rock, it just, even if I'm doing it for pennies on the dollar, I'll be like, I'll do it free. Just, it's so much fun, you know? Country pays the bills. It pays well. But boy, <laughs> rock is so much fun. It's just bass, guitar, drums. It's like, I die and go to heaven every time somebody goes, hey, you want to mix a rock thing? You're like, yeah, sign me up. Let's do this. Yeah. There's a good indie rock scene in Nashville. It's popped up in the last like 10, 15 years, I feel like, right? I haven't been there in a while. Yeah, there really is. So I'm kind of, uh, I lean toward the slicker side of sounds. So like a real drum kit, like if you just sit down and play a real drum kit, that's like my worst nightmare. You know, just real <laughs> drums in a room. I can't stand that. So I'm all like, Real slick samples, EQ compression. I love drums are like my thing. If I could die or not die, if I could go back and rewrite my life, I would have been a drummer, you know? Yeah. Did you so, play when you were younger? Guitar. Guitar. Okay. And I was always in bands in college and high school. And that's where my love of music came from. 
Actually, I think it probably came from my grandfather, even though I don't remember his music or him playing, but I always saw posters. He was in a traveling family band, and they were a nice. four-piece acoustic band. And they, uh, the Decker family band, they traveled all over Nebraska, western Nebraska. I mean, this was probably in the 40s, 50s, whatever, cool. 30s. Yeah, actually, that's- earlier than that. So, But I, I remember seeing the posters, and that's probably where I got my love of music. That's awesome. So I was looking around your website and doing a little bit of reading before we jumped on. And it, it looks like at one point you got a BS in like criminal uh, justice justice at some point. Yeah. So did you do a, like a hard career change and, and get into music or were you always kind of had music going on the side while you were doing that? I always had music going on the side and I wanted to major in music. And that's one of my biggest regrets is I didn't get a theory major. Mm. I would recommend anybody in the engineering field, if you could get a theory major, oh, it helps so much. It does. Just for like when you're tuning vocals or, you know, you're cutting music and somebody's got a question, you're like, hey, let's do it in the key of A flat. And when I put it on auto tune here, I'll take out this note, this note, and it'll be perfect, you know? Yeah. And me here, I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about, you know? <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. In theory, no pun intended. <laughs> so, I wanted to major music and actually looked into that, but there was a calculus class required at the University of Nebraska for math or for music. And I am so bad at math. I can barely count 10 on my hands. You know what I mean? My fingers or toes. And so I was like, I got to do something in college that doesn't require math. Criminal justice was the only major that required zero math for four years or five years. It took me. That's so that's that's why I did it. I just wanted to get a degree. My dad always used to say, you know what? College, you may not do what you're wanting to do or learning to do, but just the experience of college, learning to be on your own, make decisions, be able to start and stop something and say, you know what, I'm going to complete this. I'm going to do this. Yeah, I think it's a good life lesson. So I'm like, okay, no problem. That's great. I mean, yeah, college is like, it's kind of like learning how to learn, you know, because you're kind of on your own and you got to figure out like, all right, what are my responsibilities? What do I have to do it? It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty good for a lot of people, pretty bad for some people too. <laughs> I have a daughter who is attending the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and she's majoring in music. And I kind of convinced her to major in music, even though she didn't even want to go to college. She just wanted to go out and give it a shot in the music business, you know, as a singer, songwriter, everything. I was like, you know, it's good to have that backup plan and just to be able to say you can start and stop and it grows you up pretty quick, you know, and you might as well major in music because that's what you want to do. So get that theory background. So, yeah, yeah. And to this day, I still think she's not happy that she's in college, you know, and (laughs) always says my dad made me go to college. I really didn't even want to do this. It's stupid. Yeah. But I think one day she'll look back and go, I'm, I'm glad I decided to do that, you know? Yeah. Well, she'll look back, she'll see all the connections she made, all the people. That's the the great thing about going to music school or like art school. You're getting surrounded by the people that are doing what you want to do. And you just, you ha- you live and breathe it. You, you grow so much faster that way. So, I think that's a great point. That's a great point. So. Yeah. And I wanted to go back and just say, I don't know what's crazier. The fact that you had to take calculus for a music degree or that you didn't have to take any math for any other degree. I don't know what I'm like <laughs> more floored by. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was a wonderful four years without calculus. I don't think I I would have had to have uh, paid somebody to take that class or cheat my <laughs> way through it. Jeez, I'm so bad. I mean, I use a tip calculator when I go out to restaurants and stuff because I'm like, you know, so the bill's thirty bucks. You tip twenty percent. You know, what is that? You take 
30 and go, okay, 10% is three, and then double that. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing, and somebody finally just grabs the thing away. You know, it's like, <laughs> good Lord, it's six bucks, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> so I got the little tip calculator on my phone. Usually I just hand it to whoever I'm with and say, will you fill this out for me? You take care of this. Give yourself 20%. I'll pay for it. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Well, the good ones have the, you know, they have the percentages at the bottom. Like if they're smart, know, they print out the number down there for you. So I, I, li- I was listening to your mixes this morning and uh, they sound amazing. They don't sound like they're taking you an hour. So I want to get into that. But what was your career path like leading up to when you moved into full-time mixing? Did you work in a studio in Nashville? I did. I came up working at a studio called Famous Music. It was a publishing company and they had a studio in the basement. And back in the early or the late 90s, I mean, these songwriters were just kicking out demos left and right. They'd come in to do a session and they would start at like 10 in the morning. They would cut five songs in the afternoon. They would sing them. And then at night I would mix them and I would record, overdub and mix. And usually we would turn them in the next day so that they could (laughs) go out and pitch them, you know. Yeah. And this was every day. And sometimes it was multiple songwriters. So we would do a double session. So I'd have 10 to kick out. So I just had to figure out how to move fast and efficiently. Yeah. And when I discovered Pro Tools early on, I figured out that I could do a mix and then take the skin of that mix, get rid of the audio and put new audio in, hit play. And it was like, oh, it's almost mixed, you know. So that's how the template thing came about. And over the years, I just refined and refined that. And I still have templates now that I've saved going back to like 2004, 2003 that wow. I still have on my desktop. And I'll every once in a while, I'll pop them up because I'll remember a song that I used them in and I'll be like, oh, this song's kind of the same. Yeah. So and I'm a creature of habit. So I go back and look at it and it's like, oh, wow, I did that then. I'm still kind of doing that now using the same plugins and everything. So, yeah. That's funny. It just has seamlessly flowed over the years, and it's just allowed me to work really fast and efficient, but yet keep the quality high, you know? Right. So right. it's like I, I did all the legwork and the put in the time early on, and now I'm just coasting off Billy Decker. I'm, <laughs> I'm coasting off this dude, Billy Decker. He did all the hard work in the day, so now I'm just piggybacking on Billy Decker. That's right. Oh, by the way, did I say I'm Billy Decker? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I hate, I hate that guy. I can't stand that guy. Uh, you know, you were engineering too. So when I was doing a lot of pop songwriting sessions, I had like a vocal template that got me through the session really fast. But yeah, if you were recording all those songwriting sessions, you know, it's the same, the same style and the same information going into those templates. So yeah, they just, I imagine they're just going to glue together faster and faster and faster. They really did. Yeah. They really did. And then it got to the point where I just got so busy and I enjoyed the mixing part more than the recording and the micing the stuff up and engineering and overdubbing. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to be the quarterback on the football team. <laughs> so I just told everybody I was a mixer. And then I had a friend who loved to track. So I gave him all my tracking work. He gave me all his mixing work. And we kind of fed each other through the years. And here we are, you know. That's awesome. That's a hard one for a lot of people. And I, I've battled with that one, too. When you want to transition to full-time mixing, but you're living so much in that engineering world, people, like, they really see you as an engineer. They don't see you as a mixer yeah. when you're cutting drums or you're cutting vocals or whatever. And it's... Right. Uh, can be a tough spot, but that's a good move to have your your friend, you know, pushing your mixing work over to you and you pushing the tracking work back. Do you have any thoughts for uh, any other advice for somebody that's trying to make that transition, like, and avoid being pigeonholed? Uh, I actually think being pigeonholed actually worked in my favor back at the time. So, like, take, for instance, you injure yourself. You need surgery. You're not going to call your general practitioner. You're going to call the surgeon. 
to do the surgery. You want him doing your surgery, you know, rather yeah. than the guy that's the general practitioner guy. So that's kind of how I looked at it. And I actually think pigeonholing is a good idea. If you want to do something, start marketing yourself as that guy, you know? Yeah. And you don't have to necessarily turn down tracking work. You can still keep tracking in engineering, but market yourself as a mixer who also just happens to track and overdub, you know, just for fun. But mixing's my thing. Yeah. So I would just, it's all kind of smoke and mirrors and how you market <laughs> yourself and stuff. There, there is such a level of smoke and mirrors to everything in this world, isn't there? It's, it's oh, pretty yeah. priceless. Oh, yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Something that you said that I think is different from at least a lot of the guys that I talk to or girls that I talk to is that you have multiple templates. Like you, you seem to have, you've been collecting these things and cataloging like what sounds are in what. And so you're, you're not really just pulling up a template and shoving a song down. You're custom picking the template to a certain extent from a pile of templates you have. Is that part of your, your yes. move? Yeah. Like right now, I just snapped up on my computer. I'm looking at this folder I call templates right on my desktop. And there's one that says, I always name them the decorator or decorator. That's my file system. It's a play on my last name. It's also my email. But when I open up a session in Pro Tools, all I have to do is look for the decorator icon. And that's like, the mix template rather right. than the name of the song or something. So, But I've got one here that says Decorator CB30, which was a band on Capitol that I did about well, three years ago. I've got one that says Decorator Anthony Smith, who is a songwriter here in town. And I really liked the session I did for him probably a few months back. So I just made a copy of that template. So anytime something of his comes across my decks, I've got him ready to go. I've got a band called The Road Hammers I just did. I did a band called Lit a few years ago. So I just always call them, like here's one that says Decorator Organic. And that one's like a dialed back, for lack of a better term, like a Chris Stapleton sounded thing where the drums really do sound real and there's hardly any samples there and it's all EQ'd real naturally. Right, right. So like I said, that's usually not my wheelhouse, but I do know how to do it. And I actually have a template. Where if somebody says, hey, let's go, you know, real room sound and real natural sound, you know, less processed. Yeah. So that's kind of what I do. And then I've got one that says metal. I've got one that says rock. I've got one that says uh, 2018. I've got one that says <laughs> Chris Lord Algae sound alike, you know. <laughs> Chris so, Lord Algae sound alike. It's a classic. Yeah. The, uh, I guess, thinking about like you coming up through like the songwriting publishing studio, you probably got exposed to a lot of songwriting. I mean, Nashville, I mean, that's, we're talking about the hub of songwriting. Everybody knows that. I feel like in yeah. order to work as fast as you are, you have to kind of really understand the song and identify like what's important quickly. Is that something you took away living in Nashville and hanging out with songwriters all the time? Yeah. And it also actually fun little fact, I got hired as a staff songwriter here in Nashville at Curb Records, Curb Music Publishing, before I was even a paid engineer, uh -huh. to be honest with you. So by me doing that, they ended up having me on staff for uh, about five years. And in the meantime, I was engineering 
and doing the songwriting thing, but being in that world really taught me what was important and what people are looking for when they're listening to songs or artists, you know, they basically just want to hear the vocal. So the vocal's got to be loud and proud. I also learned early on, and this was back in the day when we were putting it on cassettes Oh yeah, and then transitioned into CDs and stuff like that. But if you had a mix that was this, and you can't see this because we're doing a podcast, but my fingers are showing like an inch. So if you can be an inch louder than the, guy before you or the guy after you in the in the pitch meeting you know when they're soliciting songs and stuff louder is always better it wins it, it fakes people does. out yeah people hear something louder and they perk up you know yeah so i learned early on that if i could make my demos with a super clear vocal and just a little bit louder than everybody else the songwriter might get a cut because of that or it might get extra special attention and make it farther down the line so that also kind of became my little mantra, you know, louder is better. And everybody knew that when I did a demo form or mix them, it would always be a super clear vocal, but it would be big, wide, deep, and loud. Yeah. I, I live mostly in the pop world. A lot of our listeners are, are in the pop and electronic world. How deep are the songwriting demos in the, in the country world? Are they as, as developed as like a, a pop demo where it basically sounds like the record with the wrong singer? They didn't necessarily back in the day. You used to be able to just grab an acoustic guitar, lay down a guitar vocal, and that was it, you know? Okay. But now, more and more, they are doing the record in the songwriting session because it is a lot more pop-oriented now, you know? Right. The word and term producer, where back in the day, there used to be probably five producers doing all of country music, you know? And they were super busy and doing live band stuff and whatnot, and now... Almost everybody's, a if you write the song and it turns into the record, you're the producer. Yeah, that is, that is how it works. Yeah, a lot of songwriters, very similar in the pop world, you know, Yeah, are taking the project start to finish and that is the record. So there's a lot of people that are being coined as producers these days, whether they really are or not, it doesn't matter. They are the babysitters of the project. So they're, they're in charge and they're the ones getting the credit. So yeah. Yeah, the producers become very much uh, the multi-instrumentalist brainchild behind something, not necessarily the old school organizer yeah. and session runner that, that it was for Correct. so long. Yeah. yeah, Correct. Yeah, a lot of times, and more so back in the day, some of the producers were just people that worked at labels, record yeah. labels, you know, and they were the head of the A&R department and they had no musical knowledge or experience at all. Couldn't even strum a G chord, you know, but they were... <laughs> They were considered the producer on these projects, and a lot of them were just good people people. You know, they knew if they hire the right band and they got them in the right studio with the right engineer, it would just almost autopilot itself. Yeah. And even way back in the 90s, I mean, they would be doing multiple sessions a day, cutting multiple records with the same producer, where the producer would just stop in for like an hour and say, hey, how's it going? All right, yeah, that sounds great, cool. Go over to the no another studio, Artist B was over there. I mean, they were doing three and four artists a day, the same producer. <laughs> I mean, just factory spitting them out. And that, I think, is where Nashville was good and bad mm. in the sense that it was great with the efficiency and the level of musicianship. You could do that. But at the same time, everything started sounding the same because it was. It was the same producer, same musicians, same songwriter, <laughs> same everything. And it was this really tight-knit, closed community. So I guess that was good and bad 
you know, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Well, that was actually one of the reasons that, you know, I shied away from coming to Nashville in early 2000s is I had heard and I could see that it was very tight. It was all the same players and it was the same studios. And I was like, well, what if I can't get in that? What if I can get in that little circle? What am I going to do? Can I ask you another Nashville, just in general question before we go back to your mixing? Yeah, I don't I don't claim to be an expert, but I can (laughs) give you my insight. Totally. So do you feel like you see it changing a lot. I know Nashville was, there's so many amazing players there. Is this kind of like popular realm of country? Like, is it affecting how busy those players are? They still got a lot of stuff to do, right? Yeah. I've noticed a lot more now are happening at home studios. Okay. And that, that doesn't really affect me for the most part, just cause I'm so niche based, you know, at the end of the day, I actually don't tell a lot of people this, but during the whole lockdown COVID thing, 2020. Yeah. The only way people could make money was to put out content. I mean, the live touring, they got decimated. You know, I've got friends that were out of work and you name it. Oh, yeah. But every everybody needed content to put out on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. And at the end of the day, that stuff had to sound good, you know, so they could make money. So I actually had an above average year. And I talked to a couple other of my friends who are mixers and they said the exact same thing. They're like, yeah, we're busier than ever. Yeah. But I have noticed that a lot of home recording setups, I've got a friend who's a drummer and he actually stopped doing regular sessions just because he's so busy and can make more money at home doing a per song drum rate rather than going in and doing the standard, like a demo rate where they book you out for three hours, you're unionized and all that stuff. You know, he would get 180 bucks for three hours doing demos or whatever it is now. And at home, he can be like, I'll do one drum track for 200 bucks. Yeah. And it takes him 15 minutes and he's just lined those up back to back. So why wouldn't he? Yeah. No drive time. No sit around, play drums in your pajamas and then just drop box it out. and Good to go. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of engineers have set up drummers with a bunch of gear and it's if you got good sounds, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. I don't mind. I don't mind getting files that some drummer recorded if it was put together properly. It's great. Yeah, I've always been a fan of actually smaller drum rooms, to be honest with you, rather mm. than the big, like if you get drums from Oceanway or yeah. there was a studio down south called Sound Kitchen. It's something different now, but that was one of the biggest rooms. And it was just like, it was too big. You know, the, <laughs> the room mics were almost unusable because you could hear almost like an echo. Yeah, It was that big. Yeah. So I actually like smaller and tighter drum sounds. And then, you know, with as many samples as I use and whatnot, it's like, you can do anything. Just as long as it ain't distorted, I can make it sound decent. Yeah. I mean, you can manipulate things for days, for days. Oh, I know it. Well, not you, know you, it. you. You can manipulate things for hours, but other people can manipulate them for days. <laughs> um, manipulate them for minutes. minutes. Okay. So being a mixer, I know, I know how much prep work I do on a session and how long it can take to like spit out deliverables and like stems and stuff like that. And, you know, like the mix falls together as fast or as slow as the mix falls together for most people. What's your preparation and your project ending system like? Do you also have those like very dialed in to speed? Do you have an assistant maybe? I wouldn't say I have an assistant, but I've got a couple fellas who are producer, engineers, songwriters and whatnot. And they're actually very knowledgeable and have worked with me so much that I actually just swap out studio time with them. And they in turn, because I've I've got a, a dedicated studio I rent. You know, it's okay. called the cabin at Westwood and uh, I pay two grand a month. No secret about that. It's got cable, 
internet. It's got a lounge. It's got a little kitchenette. It, it's a great, it's got an overdub booth. Great. And it's just a really cool little studio. It's all wood. It's the one you see on my website. But I will let, I call them my favorite two millennials. I hate all millennials except these two. You know what I mean? No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. My son's a millennial right on the edge of one. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, they come in and they do overdubs down here a lot. And in return, I'll be like, hey, will you bounce down stems and stuff for this project? Oh, nice. And they're real familiar with the deliverables. So it works out great. It's a win-win for all of us. That's you know? cool. They would prefer working at night and I would prefer working during the day. So a lot of times they'll be like, hey, can I come in tonight when you're gone? I'm like, sure. You mind bouncing down, mix TV track or whatnot, yeah. you know, and uh, a vocal only and we can send them. So, but I have started mastering as well. And I include that in my little bundle package, we'll call it. <laughs> so I don't claim to be a mastering engineer, but I've got a couple of really good friends who are, and they've kind of showed me what they do. And I understand it enough that I can actually provide a Decker mastered file as well as a high resolution file just as part of my shtick, you know? <laughs> and a lot of times people are like, hey, this sounds great. This is ready to upload. You just saved me a couple hundred bucks getting something mastered. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it takes me, you know, 10 minutes to do a little master job on something like that. So. Totally. And like I said, I, I don't profess to be a mastering engineer and I don't mean to step on toes or say that it's not an important part, but I know how to get something to sound loud and big and wide. And I call it a Decker master and it's in the correct format. So why not? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, the way the world is and things are moving fast, budgets are shrinking sometimes and exploding on exactly. other sides it's you know I, I do the same thing i offer a lot of a lot of masters and basically if you want the master i'll do it i recommend you go somewhere else but i'll do it for you if you want right you yeah know? me too me so too. uh yeah. yeah it's kind of just what people expect especially with all the the bedroom producers and everybody that just they're used to just getting it all and being done you know so it's like you got to adapt right. and offer what the people need but so i would love to talk about your process to whatever extent you're willing to share without like spoiling your course or spoiling your book. I guess the root question is you knew that you needed to work quick. Was there anything else that inspired you to like be able to do this as fast as you can? Is it that you want to do 10 songs a day or is it that you want to have most of your day with your family? What, what, what's the inspiration behind this? That's what it was when the, the kids were younger. I used to get up, crack a dawn, you know, 630. They have to be in their seats by eight. And then I would drive them to school every morning and then jump down in the studio and Music Row didn't even open till 10 o'clock. And so I actually started, I'd have a couple mixes done before Music Row even woke up, you know? And then I was able to get home five o'clock yeah. late afternoon and the kids, you know, we'd be out jumping on a trampoline or go to the pool or whatnot. I was able to, I wasn't able to do that for a while. And I figured out, hey, I'm really missing out on some good stuff here. That's, you know, I don't want to be that guy that's in the studio 12 hours a day. No, thank you. So, yeah, it was uh, a need to get home and just have a work-life balance. And then I have just kept doing it over the years. And now that the kids are grown and gone, I don't need to get up as early. So I'll actually avoid rush hour, come in a little later, 10, 30, 11, yeah. and then I'll work up till seven Yeah, because the kids are grown and gone now. So I actually can avoid rush hour traffic. And I, yeah, so I'm all about the work-life balance. You know, you got to be able to have fun and enjoy what you do. Otherwise, I've been real fortunate that my job doesn't feel like a job. 
Yeah. It's actually fun. I still have fun coming in and mixing and whatnot. And I've been very lucky to be able to love what I do. So, and then I never, I try not to ever work on weekends and give myself time to woodwork. I love woodworking. I like building motorcycles. I taught myself to weld, just stuff like that. I love to mow the grass. You know, (laughs) I love to be outside and get some sunshine. Yeah. I still mow my own grass. There you go. That's probably a country song, right? (laughs) It will be. You can, you can write it as soon as we're done. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, so many people struggle with work life. I mean, I, I fight with it. A lot of the people I talk to on the on the podcast, they, they fight with it. And it's kind of part of the inspiration behind the podcast is like these kind of like career life oriented things that are necessarily not technical. So I'm glad that that's like the root of why you work the way you work. Because I think some people, they just pay the price of their 18 hour days for too long. And, you know. Oh, yeah. They die of a heart attack. Yeah. Or you know what else? I learned pretty early on, if I spend too much time on a song and don't trust my gut instinct, I always end up going back to my gut instinct anyway. So it's like I finally figured out I'm not going to sit here and second think my original thought or my gut feeling about, oh, that yeah, that is that too loud? Is that loud enough? No, it's just like, boom. Yeah. And once I started doing that, being able to let go of a mix, it's really hard to go, okay, I'm done with this. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people will just spend days and days and circle back around. You start pulling your hair out. And, I mean, you're calling your great aunt in Utah going, what do you think of this? You know, <laughs> does this sound okay? Did I? So I, I just learned early on to almost like throw and go, you know, trust your gut. And it usually works pretty good. Well, I think that's where the, the template stuff is so important. You know, you can chase your gut and you don't have to have those technical things to take you out of it. Like, I got to turn the breaths down now or I got to open my drum sample thing. It's like... Every time you leave the creative process, you're just adding time to whatever you're doing, whether it's production or mixing. So right. a lot of people have figured that out, but a lot of people, they still go down the rabbit hole. And they just, it's, I, f- I like to separate them. You know, it's like I'll, I'll do all my preps on a day and I'll do all my mixes for the rest of the week or whatever. So Yeah. You know what else is funny with the template thing? Everybody, when I started doing it, they were like, man, you're going to put yourself out of work if you start making these available or selling them or writing books or whatnot. So I did a little experiment. I took a song, gave it to three of my mixing buddies who I consider better than me and gave them all the same template. And I said, do me a favor, copy this. Here's my mix. Do me a favor, try to clone this. And it's funny, all three mixes came back, didn't even sound remotely like me. And it's because 10 minutes in, all of a sudden, I start turning right with my ears. Their ears would go left because they're just not used to They're like, why is Decker doing that? That's weird. I always do this. My hi-hat's always over here. And you keep doing that about 10 times, and it's like a Pandora's box, and it, it gets so far off. It sounds good, right. but it didn't sound like me at all. It was totally different. And so that just proved to me that I'm not going to put myself out of work. I'll actually probably increase my work, to be honest with you. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree. Yeah. And I would like to think after doing this for this long that I'm not horrible. I know what I'm doing, you know, (laughs) that much so that I've actually tried to copy a few people that I really admire in the engineering world so much so that I call them and ask them what they do and they'll give up their secrets to me and then I'll try to mimic them. And that doesn't work. And I'd like to think I'm pretty good at trying to solve problems and copy somebody. I know enough to and I can't even copy them. So if I can't even do it, I don't have to worry about anybody copying me. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody's got a sound, whether, you know, even songwriters, because I've done so much work with songwriters, I can pick out who top lined something. You know, it's like everybody's got their thing that they bring. We're all using the same notes. We're all using the same plugins. We're all using the same chords. 
stuff still yeah. mostly sounds different. Sometimes, sometimes it sounds the same. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. I don't think there's any reason to not share knowledge with people because in the end, it's it's you or them or whoever it is. It's doing the thing, and they're going to do it differently because they've got different taste and different background, and you know, everybody uses the same stuff. Right, and you know what's funny is because I can work so fast and because I am able to do that, it has allowed me to keep my prices sometimes available to, well, let's just say the masses that might not be able to, or they might not think that they could afford some guy that's mixed songs for the radio and stuff like right, that, you know, right? and had some, some chart topping stuff. And because I've been able to do that, that has also kept me employed where there you go. Why do we want a Billy Decker copy when we can actually afford Billy Decker? Let's just get the real thing. Yeah. You know? Totally. And a lot of my friends can only mix one song a day or two songs a day at the most, you know, and here I am banging out seven and they, they sound great and I'm still home for dinner, you know? <laughs> and so I'm actually making more. I have to move a little faster, but I'm actually competitive financially with the guys that are mixing the records, only records one a day or something like that. You yeah. Know? And then here I am, I've got a stack of three or four demos, and then I've got an independent record from Canada and whatnot, you know, and that all adds up to more than my buddy doing that. So it's funny. I always say, you can have the fame, just give me the fortune. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that I, I always like end up talking to like assistants or other engineering buddies about is like understanding your hourly rate, because it's, you know, everything, most things in music are like a project price, you know, and it's. So yeah. then when you start to like break those things down, like if you're charging whatever you're charging for a mix and it's taking 18 hours by the time you deliver the files, I mean, you're probably making like $10 an hour. So it's, I always encourage people exactly. to like figure out what you're making and then figure out what the price is. Cause in the end it's the hourly. It's like, if I work, right. if I work half as much and I make the same amount of money in my life, I get double the enjoyment. And you know, it's like, I, I think pe more people need to think about that. So I'm glad you highlighted the fact that your rates are below some of the, the other people in town because of your ability to go fast. And also some of my friends, they only mix, they only have like a couple rates, like a master rate and an independent rate. And they're still pretty high, Right. but they have to do that because they can't, it doesn't make sense for them financially Yeah. because they're not able to just move along as quickly. Whereas I can move along faster, whether I'm doing a master, a demo or an indie rate and hell, I can do all three in a day. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just the way I've learned and taught myself. So that's kind of my wheelhouse and my niche. You know, everybody knows they'll come over here. It's going to be in that 95 percentile. It's never going to be much above or much below. It's just locked in right there, you know, and it's because of the, over the years, the efficiency and the templates, and it's like, we know it's going to sound good no matter what he does. So let's just, yeah, yeah it works. We know we're going to get a Billy mix. Let's go get a Billy mix. Exactly. Did you ever, yeah. this is kind of a, a weird question. Uh, did you ever get pushback from clients when you started? Because you're, you're very open about how long it takes you to work. Are, are people yeah. ever concerned? Or are they ever like, really, I got to pay you this much for you to work an hour on it? Or I can't believe you are, are done working at 4 p.m. and you're at home with your kids? Like, did you ever, ever have to deal with any of that with clients? I did right at the start. And then uh, there, a lot of people at, at the beginning, they were like, oh, Decker only spent 10 minutes EQing that kick drum. He should have been sitting down there for an hour doing that, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I did deal with that for a bit. But what I ended up doing is I turned that extra time into time for them to come in and hang out and tweak the mix and really make it perfect. 
And what I would say is, hey, it doesn't take me an hour to EQ a kick drum. Let me put this in my template. It's already pre-EQ'd. It's ready to go. I've heard this kick a million times. I know it works. Let's take that extra time and you can come in, sit down here, and we can make all your rides. Then love that. You get the songwriter, producer, as much time in the studio in front of their music and help them tweak it out. Yeah. They would much rather do that than sit and watch me EQ a kick drum for an hour. Yeah. So I turned it back around to them and gave them their time. And so that was like a win-win for everybody, you know? And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, this is great. I was able to come in. I didn't have to wait 10 hours and then come in at midnight to hear my mix. I actually came in at two o'clock and here I am going home for dinner too. And it sounds great. I'm happy. You're happy. You got paid. My song got cut. Let's go jump on the trampoline with the kids or whatever. Everybody you know? wins. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's, that's an interesting way to flip it. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. And to this day, the reason I don't work at home and have like a home studio is because people actually like to attend with me. So it's almost vital. I'd say it's a 50-50 thing where I still get a lot of traffic in here where people like to come be hands-on in the studio. Whereas if I was at home, a lot of times I'd be like, I really don't want you walking through my kitchen or peeing in my toilet. You know what I mean? Uh, I know people that have home studios and they're like, no, we don't do attended mixes. I just, I mix from home. That's my space. I just give you your mix. We can deal with it over Zoom or Skype or something like that. But a lot of people actually like to come in here, sit down. I love it. I've got a couple clients that are very Pro Tool savvy. So I'll actually turn over the entire desk to them. I'll sit back there and read the news or look at TikTok videos or something, you know what I mean? And just wait for them to get done. And then they're like, okay, print, let's go. Make sure I haven't got the vocal too loud, Decker. And then they get up and go and see you next week. Appreciate you. That's awesome. Bounce me down my versions. I'm going home. So That's good. Yeah, it works. It works for everybody. In in room communication, especially over the last year and a half, is something that has just like faded out so much. But it's so beneficial to be able to look at a person's reaction when they hear something to kind of like look at them when they're telling you what they like or don't like, because it's so hard to translate an email or a text message of, you know, this is what I don't like about it. And you're like, that ah, doesn't even make sense. Everything you just typed doesn't make sense. You know, so. Right. Yeah, I, I always enjoy having people in the room. Oh, yeah. And it's it's just part of, I think, what people as humans need. You need interaction. You need, otherwise, I mean, you know, being an engineer, you could sit by yourself in a dark room and just your hygiene goes down, your people skills. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I mean, the the classic engineer is like that dude that lives in a dungeon with long hair and a concert t-shirt. His social skills are nil. He doesn't speak. He just grunts, hasn't showered in a week. But we can all find our way back there if we're not careful. Yes, but um, sunlight and people skills. (laughs) (laughs) I got one or two more questions before we we hit our closing questions. One of them, I I think you'd have an interesting perspective on this. You've got 16 number ones. Do you think that your calendar is full because you have 16 number ones or because of the relationships that you've built with people in town? Relationships I've built in town. So I've got friends that have way more number ones. I mean, double, triple, quadruple what I've got. Yeah. And they're sitting at home and sucking the salt off Fritos on the couch. Their phone ain't ringing. You know what I mean? (laughs) I always like to, uh, I like to set up the answer to this question. Just, I like people to tell my (laughs) listeners that relationships are are what matters. It's all people skills. It really is. Yeah. 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 I mean, when you get to a certain point, you could hand me the same song or 
any of my buddies, it's going to sound great. No matter who does it, it'll sound right. fine. It's almost who do you want to hang with and who do you want to kind of navigate through your project with you? Yeah. And a lot of times, if we're all the same sound and skill-wise, it's always going to default to, hey, who's got the best snacks? Where do I want to go hang out? And Decker's <laughs> always got the tennis channel on. I love tennis, you know, while we're mixing <laughs> So it's just stuff like that. Yeah, you know? It is. Well, you know, producers, like it's, you know, going back to the old school producer, they put the right people together. Yeah. If people know that you're going to be compatible with their artist and the artist is going to have a great time because they know that they're going to like you, then yeah, you're going to go to you. I just, I can never push it on people enough that like friendships and relationships and just being a good hang is like number one. And then talent is number two-ish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. No, it really is. It's funny. I've got, uh, I had a client not too long ago that says, you know, Decker, you're not the best, but you have Slim Jims always in your studio and I love beef snacks. <laughs> Slim Jims. <laughs> so I went out to Costco and I got the giant size ones. And the next time he came in, I had like the biggest box of Slim Jims with his name written on it. And he's like, dude, I'm just going to move in. You've got all my work now. And it's all because I seriously catered to what I knew he actually jokingly liked. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I don't even think he ate one, but just the fact that they were here and I thought to have those for him, he was like, so it's just little stuff like that, you know, people skills. I, I started my career at Capitol Studios out here and I was a runner and there was a production coordinator that uh, on some project must have expressed that she liked a specific pencil. And I don't know what happened, but every time she was bringing a project in, every pencil in that studio got swapped out to that pencil that she liked instead of the one that was like, <laughs> you know, the one that we normally stocked in there that was probably the cheapest one from Office Max. This was like, you know, a dollar more a box. And uh, it's those little things that like, you know, it's the attention to detail. People are like, I love this place because they have that pencil I love. You know, it's just right, like that. Right. It's a weird, strange yeah. story that popped into my head and you're talking about Slim Jims. But uh, <laughs> so I know, uh, is there anything you want to share with us about your course and your book? Anything that you want to tell people like why they might want to check it out other than it's going to make them mix faster and kind of let them in inside your brain a little bit? Yeah, it's actually the first time I think anybody's ever given up the ghost and given the exact thing that somebody who's had songs on the radio do. So if I had something like that, I probably wouldn't have even went to recording school. It's almost like uh, being my intern for six months and me teaching you how to mix. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I jokingly tell people, they go, why did you do that? Why did you show everybody how you do it? I said, because if I can get everybody to sound like me, I'll listen to the radio all the time. I'll turn on the radio and it's like, there I am, you know? <laughs> if if everybody sounds like me, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. I'd listen to the radio every day, you know? Well, you know you had such a big impact on all these people coming up. They're like, you know, you helped everybody get to the top and fill the radio up with uh, decorator mixes. <laughs> That's right. So a lot of people were nice to me, you know, as, as I was making my way up. So I figured, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do the same thing. And shoot, if you can monetize it, why not? Make a little buck. Yeah. I won't get rich off it, obviously, but it's just something that's fun to do. And I can look back at it down the road and somebody will be like, hey, weren't you that guy that had that mixing course? Yeah, that really helped me. And, uh, you know, I just mixed my new band. What do you think of it? And some 18 year old kid sends me a mix and go, man, I appreciate you doing that. That just makes you feel good. You know, just something nice to do. Yeah. So. Well, and the studio world has changed so much in the last decade. So many studios have closed. So many people are working in home studios. 
people that are coming up now, they don't have as much access to learn from people that are doing real work. Right. You know, they don't have assistance. They're working at home. They've left Los Angeles or Nashville. They're, they're living in the woods now because remote work is the future. And where is this kid going to learn how to, you know, mix like Billy or or mix like Chris or, or whatever? You know, it's just, uh, it's right. great. It's, right. I think it's, I love people sharing information. So that's, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. And like I, like I said earlier, it's doesn't matter. You're never going to be able to copy me up note for note. You oh know? yeah. It's just, unless I can clone my ears, you can't copy. Yeah. You can get close, but it won't be the real thing. Yeah. I think a great way to experience like somebody having their own unique sound for, I was a guitar player too. You, you said you came up with a guitar player. You could pass a guitar from one player to the next player and get an entirely different instrument, despite the fact that it's the same guitar. It is in right. the fingers. And if you know a guitar player, you've probably experienced this and it, it maybe it's a little trickier from a mix perspective. But for me, that was always mind blowing when one great dude passes a guitar to another person. You're like, whoa, it's like thicker. Yeah. And you've you've got the tablature right there. Everybody's playing the exact same thing. It's no secret. Yeah. You know, it's almost the same yeah. thing. Yeah, so. it's basically the same thing. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So the last two questions of the day, and I will let you get back to mixing seven more songs. These are kind of rooted in the the origins of the show. And so they're a bit more just like career life oriented. Was there a time mm -hmm. in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Uh, yeah. The minute I started not working 12 hours a day and was able to come home and hang out with the kids. And once I got my work-life balance under control, it was great. Yeah. Even now, sometimes I'll screw it up. But boy, I look back on those times and there is nothing like being able to mix provide for your family, do what you love, and then you come home when it's still light and two little kids run up to you, jump on you, dad, dad, let's go ride bikes, dad, dad, let's go do this. Yeah. So that to me was like the good stuff and that's when it clicked. So I would say uh, 2001. Very yeah. good, love it. Right about then, so. And then it's been down downhill ever <laughs> since, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so uh, the, the last question is, uh, what right now is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Uh, you know what? I really want to mix a rock record and hear that on the radio. To date, I have not. And I'd really like to just hear myself in the rock world. Yeah. It's something I really enjoy. And um, but yeah, I've done stuff. I've, uh, I actually got to produce and got paid and got points. Didn't make anything, but <laughs> produced uh, a national act back in the day. So that was bucket list. I actually wanted to get a number one. That was bucket list. Yeah. So I keep doing these really cool bucket list things and checking them off. So yeah, I'd say just mix a rock record yeah. that's on a, a major or minor label that I get to hear on Octane on XM or something like that, cool. you know? I think that'd be that'd be fun. That's awesome. So, well, you knocked that one off yeah. the bucket list too. Well, get get it done. <laughs> get, get it, it done. done. Billy, this has been uh it's been so much fun, man. I enjoyed I enjoyed hanging. Do you want to share with people where they can find you on the internet or uh your book or your course or whatever? Yeah, uh my OnlyFans uh <laughs> is no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, it's just billydecker.com and then I'm on Facebook, you know, just Billy Decker. I've got an Instagram called Deckerboards. And it's kind of a play on my weekend hobby of making cutting boards and stuff like I that. I saw those. So. Those look good. Yeah, it's a lot yeah, of fun. Man, it's awesome. Well, dude, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you're busy and that you got to get home and uh, and live your life. So I, I'll put links to everything in the uh, in the show notes so people can find you. And yeah, man, it was a pleasure. Hey, I can't thank you enough for inviting me on. It's been the 
the worst hour of my life that I'm never going to get back. No, I'm just... Well, you can always listen to it Real, and That's you can right. relive uh, it. For another hour. Woohoo! Oh, That's cool. right. No, thanks so much, man. I appreciate your time. That's it for episode 59. Thanks to Billy Decker for coming on the show. Please check out his book, Template Mixing and Mastering, and also his course. There will be links in the show notes to those. And thanks to all of you for listening. A special thanks to our latest Patreon supporters as well. You know who you are. And remember that word of mouth is how this show spreads the most. So if you've been enjoying it, please consider leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. There's been some really awesome conversations going on over there recently, so don't miss those. And I will see you all next time.